Not sure what sports are provided in Calgary? Sport Calgary Sports Directory will help you find the sport and sport organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Hi, you kids. How how you holding up, everybody? How how you doing? It's, believe it or not, almost the end of summer. Wow. The summer months. I mean, summer will go on for a couple more weeks yet. But uh, it's getting to that point. Uh, Anyway, I am your uh, podcasting pal, your podcasting friend, uh, Rob Kerr. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the original Six Feet Conversation podcast here at Sport Calgary. Um, Very interesting, cool, neat, awesome kind of topic today as we're going to spend some time with a doctor, Dr. Ryan Todd. But more importantly than that, he is the man behind Headversity. And Headversity is a uh, made in Calgary solution, I might say, a app. Um, that is gaining a lot of notoriety in, in this space, especially in sports, but also in business. Um, I'll let Ryan explain it. Probably better it comes from him. But we're talking about a pretty cool guy. I mean, 2019 was uh, named by Avenue Magazine one of the top 40 under 40 in our city. Um, has produced a documentary that has garnered wide praise um, in the hockey world. And we'll get into that. Um, but just generally a really cool dude, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will enjoy it too, and really looking forward to uh, working with uh, Dr. Todd on some projects for Sport Calgary as well. So uh, hopefully we'll get into that. I do want to remind you that Sport Calgary acts as a resource for sports organizations with a ton of information available at sportcalgary.ca. Learn about community and coaching resources, research jobs, and of course, the latest in Calgary sport. Uh, Without further delay, let's jump into it. Spend a little time with Dr. Ryan Todd. For someone who does what you do, what has the last, you know, five months been like? What what what's your life evolved into? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I when it first hit, I remember going to the hospital, and it was it was eerie because uh, we had to like every we're still in masks but i was not accustomed to being in a mask all day no one was now we are uh you had to get your temperature sign in questionnaire there's lineups outside the hospital just to get into work there uh, so that was eerie but then you'd get into the hospital and no one was there uh, because they were emptying out units left right and center uh, like i think you know uh, whoever works at, at some of these hospitals unit 58 it's a big unit they were emptying it out to to accommodate for the or the tsunami of COVID patients. Right. Um, and so it just was so empty. And usually like these big hospitals um, at Foothills, uh, they're they're buzzing. And this one was not because it was just so empty and eerie and weird. Uh, and then there was, I, I think the mental toll, right? That I was mm-hmm. taking on a lot of frontline practitioners, nurses, physicians, social workers, physiotherapists, OTs, uh, because we were just so worried about like getting the virus, like we were, and we, and then passing it on. There's just so many unknowns, um, and I recall being hyper vigilant for the first two months for sure. My my wife is also a physician, so uh, so we're still vigilant, but I don't think we're as stressed about the vigilance. We're just kind of getting into a normal routine. So then there was this like that was the first period. There was like this middle period where um, we were thinking okay like is this normal like is this like how, what what does life look like and then this third period where 
uh, we're all kind of fatigued with it and it's just settled into like how life is now. Um, and so that's had a really interesting impact on both the patients I work with and the frontline care physicians I interface with and the companies that my, my organization, Headversity, works with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's had some really bizarre and it continues to unfold. Like, like I think is the most interesting part. That, that to me is the story of this: is that when it first, when we shut down, Rudy Gobert gets tested, the NBA shuts down. And in my world, you know, everything comes to a grinding halt, and it seems like very similar. Then the schools all shut down. There was almost this immediate, well, this is what it's going to look like. Like you said, the hospitals and everybody masks, everybody at home. What I don't think anybody predicted was what July and August were going to look like. Where, and if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly. Uh, Ryan, you're almost talking about that uh, that fatigue, right? That uh, you know that yeah. we've been in through this. I'm tired of it now, right? You can't be tired of it now. Yeah, it, and I, you remember that eh? when the NHL when the NBA shut down, I think they were the first league. Yeah, they were. Call. Yeah, half uh, hour after was... Rudy Gobert test, half half hour after the ref called that game in Utah, the NBA shut down. That was unbelievable. Yeah, it was shocking. Like yeah. it was, and then I I remember. Uh, talking to some buddies about my hockey league that I played here <laughs> in Calgary. We're like, oh, we're good. Like, we're going to keep going. Yeah. That was shut down. NHL shut down, the whole thing. And then, yeah, it was shocking. And and what is interesting now, I think, I think the NBA and the NHL have been the two success stories of of the of the pandemic. The Major League Baseball has had some hiccups. Uh, CFL, obviously, which I'm a huge fan of, has obviously just eviscerated and i think they fumbled uh to use a pun on that whole thing who knows where the nfl is going to go but i i don't know if the nhl and the nba can they keep this up for another season like can they keep going I, like sure for a playoff for a congested period of time can they do it but can they run a whole season in a bubble like that's i don't know i don't know it's, it, it's funny at the tape at the timing of this taping is the nhl's moving into its second round and the nba is just finishing its first round you are starting to see some stories in the media about the fatigue of being in bubbles, right? That, you know, being at a first-class hotel and, and having everything taken care of for you is starting to catch up to guys, right? So I think it's okay in a playoff format, but, geez, four or five, six months, of, can you imagine the, the, you know, not to feel sorry for a professional athlete, but kind of the, the anguish of, of kind of being confined, right? Yeah, uh, I've, I've, I don't know if you've been to the physical space. I've just seen pictures of it. They have those big construction fences around yeah. the whole ordeal, yeah. blacked out. So it's truly a, like a, it's truly a bubble. So I, that's got to have some psychological aspect to it that is uh, really isolating. I think, you know, we, we always say like, oh, it'd be amazing to be a professional athlete. Of course it would. Of course it would. Mm -hmm. And they face a lot of pressure. They're away from their families. Um, you know, there's a, you know, a bunch of guys who don't make $10 million a season. Uh, and, and I think for those to be away from your family and, and facing still the same pressures of winning and everything, it's, it's a unique and tough experience. Well, do you have, would you have had an experience in a way similar in residency or anything like that where you're, you know, it's the hamster wheel, right? Like you wake up, it's the same day. You go to bed, you wake up, it's the same day. And, you know, I had that earlier in my life and, and in college and it just, 
it wears on you, grinds on you, just has to, right? Like we, we're, we're human beings. We need diversity. We need a little bit of change added in every once in a while. I, I've always said it didn't matter where I did med school and residency because you don't leave the hospital. Right. Uh, so like it, it would have like I, I did my training in Toronto, beautiful city, great place to, to train. Um, but I, you know, you spend most of your time in a hospital and, uh, and same with medical school. Like I could have gone to, you know, Winnipeg, Saskatoon. I'm from Saskatchewan. Sure. Um, but, uh, I would have loved to gone any of those places. It wouldn't have mattered. You still spend, you know, 50% of the time studying the other 50% of your life in the actual hospital. So yeah, it's, and that does wear on you. Like they, I think that kind of in medicine, there's an interesting way to train physicians. And a lot of it is building up your, uh, mental resilience. So you don't get as fatigued when you're needed in the moment. Uh, but that hamster wheel was a very real thing in my training for sure. Not, you know, obviously the work that you do and what you've, you've created with adversity, not in your wildest dreams would you ever thought it would be as universally needed as it is now. I mean, uh, considering what the world has gone through, uh, timing, as they say, is everything. And, and what you're doing is, is certainly perfectly timed. Yeah, and we didn't predict that. There was no visionaries on our side that could have uh, predicted this absolute evolution. What we had thought, our thesis going into this, was that it would take about five years for the workplace to shift from a model of workshops, a model of bringing a kind of check-the-box feel-good speaker yep. uh, to something that was more measurable, something that was durable, something that people would actually use every day. We thought that'd take about five years, and it took literally like two months. Uh, it's just, the, I mean, the whole world has changed to digital. Uh, this very conversation was likely going to happen in person or would have happened in person. Yep. Um, and uh, just the hyper-connectivity of everything over digital platforms has changed so dramatically so quickly and mental health is amongst the forefront of those changes so there's two places i want to go one um tell me about the impact of a bell let's talk because i think the the whole idea of mental health and and being honest and open and having a discussion i think has changed rather dramatically in the last 10 years so or am i off base on that has that had an impact no, it, it has. It, it's had a dramatic impact. Um, uh, there's been so Bell. Let's talk. I think was a, a nice vehicle to give prominent individuals, in particular athletes, a way to say, "Yeah, I've had depression. I've had anxiety. You know, it it sucks, and there's treatment for it. You know, uh, like the Clara Hughes of the world." Mm. Um, there's been a couple of nice local examples, uh, like Calgary Flames examples. Tyler Parsons uh, had a bit of a, a, a thing on, uh, I don't know if it was The Athletic. But it was actually, the, on one of the last guests we had, Scott Cruikshank, and I talked about it. It was a great article because it wouldn't have been written five or ten years ago. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Brian McGratton yep. uh, has come out and done a lot of great work in this space. Uh, and being a, a leader both within the Flames and the, the National Hockey League proper. So, yeah, it, it gave a nice, easy platform, literally a hashtag to just say, this is what mental health can be, and these are the faces of mental health. So I, I think that's had a dramatic uh, change. When I, I 
I produced a documentary at the start of my residency. And because I was a resident, it took probably three years longer than a normal uh, <laughs> documentary, documentarian. Uh, but even in that three years, the conversation from the start, when we were, like, we interviewed Eric Lindros, uh, and the, the documentary was all about the concussion effect on mental health yep. and also the corollary of stigma and unraveling that in hockey. Uh, the interviews at the start of that documentary were different at the end. So even in that uh, short period of time, things were changing. And I think, Bell, let's talk. I mean, it was the most, I think 2017, 18, it was the most popular hashtag in our country. Um, so it, it it had a deep and wide impact. And now, now we're at a stage where it's like, okay, what do we do about that now? So the, the bell has been rung, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, well, wh where do we take that? And we're actually seeing some really interesting systemic things coming out of that. Like the wait lists are actually unfortunately growing a little bit because mm -hmm. more people are wanting to see therapists. Um, so the digital uh, revolution of that has been an important Thing. Have you have you seen that in like you've seen that in sport? I'm sure you've seen. Oh, it in I broadcasting. look from the time I got into it. I, you know, I'm semi-retired from the media side, but now working even, you know, I, I would go to some of the things that happened this past winter with coaches, uh, f forcing I, I think forcing us to have some really interesting conversations about how we deal with individuals. Um, you know, I, I think there's the old crotchety sports fan that. You know, hey, kids, get off my lawn. I think, you know, want athletes just to be robots and to do what the coach does. But I think the human side of it is, you know, and the best example I would give you, Ryan, is, you, you know, I, Ryan Huska, Glenn Gullitz, and all of these guys in different interviews would tell me the same thing, that when they got into the game or when they were in the game, if a coach told a guy to go through a wall, boom, he went through a wall. If you tell a player to go through the wall now, they want to know what's in it for them. They want to know why. They want to, know, they want to understand it. And I think that's the interesting point we are in pro sports right now. You know, here's Mike Babcock, who for many years was placed at the highest level of his profession. And then in a short period of time was was really kind of, you know, pushed to the sideline because he was no longer, you know, uh, coaching the way that the athlete needs to be dealt with. So it's probably a long way of saying absolutely I have. Um you know, football still bugs me because I think there's a little bit of a meat market component to the sport. But, yeah, and and I think I go to Bell. I think Let's Talk had a huge part of it. But you're unique. Okay, you asked me a question. I'm going to come back to you with a question because I wonder with Bell Let's Talk that the success of it now is are we missing a piece? We're telling people to reach out and talk. We're telling people to ask for help. But are we educating people on how to listen? Are we creating listeners active listeners out there is that the next stage of this and i i i say that with the understanding that i think what you're doing is kind of the next stage of this too yeah there's there's a lot of data around stigma and why stigma gets created and co-created in cohorts and a lot of it came from uh there was a number of anthropologists who studied uh, HIV AIDS yeah. pandemics, uh, epidemics, sorry, in, uh, in West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. And stigma existed because there was no real solution to the problem. Right. Like you could have a, a field hospital and they'd say, sorry, you have HIV. And they're like, well, what do I do about that? They're like, well, we don't know. So you, you don't want to talk about it because you don't know what to do with the answer. 
uh, and I, I remember my grandparents actually, uh, so I grew up in rural Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. very close to my grandparents. They wouldn't talk about cancer uh, because there was no treatments, really, not in the way we have treatments now, radiotherapy, sure. radiation therapy and chemotherapy. And, um, but it was, it was literally a death sentence almost with every type of cancer. So you wouldn't talk about it because there's nothing to do about it. And so I, I think where we... I don't know if it's a miss, but where we need to fill in that gap is like, well, what do we do about that now with mental health? How do we talk to each other? We 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 cannot simply build our capacity of more professionals. Like we can't just have more psychiatrists and psychologists. It, the, the 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 backlog is too full. We need to train each other in doing this. We need to use digital platforms. I strongly believe to try and to build our personal capacities to help ourselves and others mm-hmm. uh, or or that kind of de-stigma evolution uh, would be all for naught. I, I do, in an a, kind of anecdotally, can say that during this pandemic, one of the things that has really surprised me is the number of friends, and, and again, you want to talk about stigma or whatever, male friends in particular, that are you okay? Are you good? Do you need to talk? Never had that part of our conversation i mean we oh you know you can if you have to sort of thing you know the the old bravado part but to literally be texting with somebody and having them say are you okay are you good you need to talk like i i i'd like to think that that was the work that you know your profession has put in that you know the belt let's talk all of these things that got us to this where we have this never well i guess we saw the spanish flu but for our generation we've never seen anything like this I did see a lot of that. At least I hope that that's part of what you're talking about, breaking down those stigmas. But you know, it's been interesting too, and I don't know if you've had this experience, when you get on a, a call with someone, with name your digital platform, um, you ask how they're doing. Like, yeah. how, are you, how are you coping with the pandemic? That, like, how are you, you know? And I've had literally 100 meetings with folks I've never met before. And the two of us spend the first five to 10 minutes just trading stories. And and a lot of it is around our own well-being and mental health. Mm-hmm. But that's something that is, is really interesting is, is how we're, you know, coalescing around the issue. And the, a big part of that issue, a number, if, if, if physical safety is number one, mental, you know, call it psychological safety is, is number two on everyone's mind. And we're exchanging about that in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. Resiliency. How did you how did you get there? Why that particular trait or that particular topic? What I had come to realize is with most of my patients, that's what I was doing. You know, we have the diagnosis and the Mm -hmm. therapy and the treatment. A large part of that therapy is talk therapy and and literally just preparing people for the adversities that will come about. Yep. And the, the other the other kind of, you know, call it a marketing piece that we were really uh, bullish on was how do we get away from just talking about illness, in particular in the spaces that we wanted to make an impact? So we work a ton with construction, oil and gas, transport, manufacturing, sport, I, I think they all have the same sort of bravado, kind of machismo aspect to them. And if you're going to get to those folks who are, you know, that uh, professional driver who's on the road for 12 hours a day or that 
that you know craft worker who's at a refinery in northern Alberta or the mechanic uh, who works in Louisiana. Uh, you need to change the messaging away from this is depression and this is suicide. Like that just doesn't resonate. And right. what resonates, we're finding with everyone is, you know, mental health is a five and five issue. It's not a one and five issue. We all have something that's going on and we don't have to focus on mental illness. We can focus on resilience, which we all want more of this ability to get ahead of adversity. Uh, so part of it was, you know, the clinical need, what we were seeing, uh, part of it was what we were, what, what, was resonating with people who are kind of building momentum in our, you know, adversity community. And then there was a very purposeful like marketing thing here. Like what is, how are we going to be able to market to that person that has never thought about training their mindful, uh, you know, being mindful in the field while they're doing a, an important job. So tell me about where resiliency should come from or, or can come from, because I'm, I'm of the belief that it, it was one of the great things that you got out of by participating in sport. But I, I'm not sure necessarily that we promote that as well. You know, I feel like we have to do a lot of work now on soft skills that everybody's doing the hard skills or even in education. So where should we be getting or where could we be getting, you know, our basics in resiliency? I think it used to be more um, like disseminated, like the responsibility was that your parents uh, did that and also your teachers and also your coaches. There's been a, a significant shift in how your coaches and your teachers are allowed to uh, quote unquote kind of parent you. Um, like growing up, I recall having you know, conversations with my coach that had nothing to do with sport. And, uh, you know, and if, if I was, for example, if something went really well on the ice, I recall coaches being able to like slap you on the back and say, good job, you know? And so there's been a real, a real shift in the interaction between coach and player and in particular young player. And I think that shift has been largely to focus on the sport focus on the technicalities. Parenting is not your job, uh, you know, and you can kind of pull in some teamwork stuff and, and some like what it is to be a hard worker, but leave the like emotional coaching up to the parent. And I think the same thing has happened in education. I'm from a family of educators and I think there's been a significant shift. And at times I think frustrating for a lot of educators, a shift in toward how much, a teacher can parent. I think the focus has been uh, for teachers, focus on the technical skills, teach them math, teach them science, you know, teach them biology. Uh, don't necessarily be the counselor. That's the counselor's job yeah. and that's the parent's job. So I, I think there's been a miss there. And, and I think that helped model resilience and because a lot of what resilience is, is, is caring for others. And uh, so I, I think of that modeled it, and I think we're, we've lost that. So I think it needs to come back in sport because I, I believe that's a strong, you know, that I, uh, as, as you did, Rob, that, that's where I learned a lot of uh, my ability to deal with adversity was through sport. Is it too simplistic for someone like myself to say it's because we have removed failure? 
that that parents now are are so invested in the success of their child that we've made excuses or find excuses or create excuses you know and and we've all seen the writings about helicopter parents and now bulldozing parents and you know parents who are cheating to get their kids into the right colleges those types of things which are extremes I grant you but it seems like we've lost the connection with the importance of failure that there is a role in failure in terms of growing us as people yeah so the removal of failure it's anecdotally I've, I I see a lot of athletes putting a lot of young athletes putting a lot of pressure on themselves to accomplish that next like level of sport like make the tier one team or make double a make triple a um where I I think there was more of a a group mentality around failure before like we fail like to you know get to the finals or we fail to to you know you know win the tournament and so i think there's been such a shift towards hyper competitive sport that i think yeah the 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 constructs of failure have changed and then the the parenting constructs have changed because we're doing everything we can to ensure that a bubble is created so that they can get to the next level i think the 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 aspects of failure have changed dramatically and i do agree that that has changed how resilient we are and how we deal with it because i think coping with you know uh not making the team or not winning the trophy is as important as as winning it and there's a lot of literature to, to back that up as well so let me just remind everybody we're in conversation with dr ryan todd our guest here on the uh original six feet conversation podcast sport calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media blog entries features and placement on the events listing Becoming a member is easy and free. Visit www.sportcalgary.ca slash members. You are a creator, and I'm always fascinated by creators. And so two things. Obviously, I want to ask you about adversity, but you mentioned a dark room before. What on earth kind of, you know, you here you are going down a stream of medicine, and, and you're, you know, very, I'm assuming rather occupied as a student. What got you, um, you know, into producing a, a, a documentary? Yeah, uh, I, there was a uh, one of my one of my preceptors or one of the staff psychiatrists I was working with had an idea. Um, his name was Sri Balero, and uh, his idea was you know to, to create a film on this very topic. He does a lot of head injury work. At that time, I was doing a lot of work with athletes who had head injuries, and we're seeing this consistent pattern of like stigma and depression post concussion. And I felt it was such a topical time to, to really blow that discussion out because CTE was just starting to become a construct. Um, a lot of the research around CTE was just hitting peer-reviewed papers. The NFL was in a lot of hot water. Uh, the, the NHL had, had recently volleyed, uh, I think, a class action suit around it. Mm-hmm. And then the whole mental health. So these two worlds around mental health and head injury were colliding and I was, we were trying to encapsulate that in a dark room. Uh, what inspired me to do that? I, I had some personal experiences as a young athlete where I was literally concussed and I didn't really know what a concussion was, but I had my bell rung. Uh, I remember puking into a bucket on the a bench and my coach saying, are you ready to go? Like what's going on here? Yeah. When's your next shift? Um, and I was by no means a high level athlete and, but that was just the expectation. So 
you know, reflecting on some of my experiences and all of my friends' experiences who've had similar things, I thought it was something that needed to be talked about. Um, and yeah, the, I, at the time I thought documentary was the perfect uh, vehicle for that. Um, and then at the time, while we were building that documentary, we realized that like micro forms of media like YouTube and Instagram were just becoming so popular that we need to shift our education of important topics from, from documentary long form style to mm -hmm. something more short form and digital and, and mobile. And that's, that's really where adversity came from actually. And you're probably very aware of this. I don't need to remind you, but the problem with creating something is once it's done, it needs to find a home. And, and a lot of times, you know, if you're a radio guy, you do an interview, it goes in the air and that's it. If people heard it. They heard it. Uh, the, the technology certainly changed that, but there has to be a great deal of satisfaction, doesn't there, Ryan? The fact that that particular documentary has lived on and has found a purpose and, and a use and, and, you know, has recognition, you know, not bad for a guy. I'm assuming that's the first documentary you'd produce. Yes, it, it was. Uh, we had a lot of <laughs> important, uh, uh, like, learnings from that and a lot of uh, people who knew what they were doing, uh, like uh, people who produced films before. We had some really high-level media folks. Uh, a lot of what I was doing was kind of crawling through the dark and figuring out where the traction would be. And you're absolutely right. You're creating something at the same time is you're selling something to get it to live on beyond just like uh, like a YouTube documentary, which is not a bad thing. It's no. just the, the viewership isn't always there. So yeah, we, we ran it on CBC for a number of months. It was uh, sold to a number of uh, Scandinavian, well, where, where hockey is a thing, and a number of Scandinavian countries. Uh, it, it continues to live on in some high school curriculums uh, to educate about mental health stigma and... Uh, hockey concussion. So we were very proud of, of what we were able to accomplish there. You did link it to the next project to which I want to talk about is, is adversity. Uh, but just curious about your profession and what you do and, and the changes that, you know, non-traditional education formats are, are taking that, uh, you know, we're going to talk about something that's an app. Is that readily acceptable in your world or, or, or is behind the scenes or, you know, we were talking about coaching and how coaching has changed and, and really it comes down to the delivery of the content and, and the receptacle and who's taking it. I'm, I'm wondering though, do, do people, do your peers struggle with delivery methods or, you know, the old traditional, see the patient, deal with the patient face to face. Uh, is there any kind of controversy behind the scenes in your world? I, I, I don't think it's embroiled in controversy. I think it's seen sometimes in like academic circles, which medicine and academia are, they're so intertwined. Mm -hmm. I think it's seen as like a nice to have or like kitschy or a like that's cute sort of thing. Yeah. Um, where outside of that, it's like, how do we, you know, how do we actually meet the, the demand where, where there's there's so much value still put on that interpersonal uh, therapy and that interpersonal relationship where there's there's, I think, too much value still put on that. You have one patient and that one patient needs to see one therapist. Um, I think that's hurt our field a lot. Uh, the 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 technology that we have available to us 
is way ahead of where we are, I think, in mental health. And we need to be able to, um, we need to be able to really shift our focus towards how do we, how do we not just build quote unquote capacity, like training yeah. more therapists, but how do we use the technology we have, you know, in, in hand, uh, an interesting corollary, I think was with telecommunications, you know, growing up again in the small town, I had heard stories about the telephone operator <laughs> in our town and uh, they were, it was, it was, a, it was a, a revered position. You know, there's only so many jobs in a small town and the telephone operator would literally take, um, would hear the person on the one line and get to know them a little bit. Hey, what do you need? And who are you connecting with? It was, you needed to have a lot of that emotional capacity to do the job and that operational capacity to hook you into the next person. And for years, I, I had heard about these old stories of how that person was irreplaceable. Well, you know, in the U.S., uh, I read a stat the other day, and when uh, this the automated switchboard came out, like 99% of that role in the U.S. like just evaporated literally with over the course of, of, of a year. Um, a position that was seen to be so interpersonal and you needed to have a human on that end uh literally within a year changed and i think we're starting to see some of that evolution where i would like to see mental health care move to a place where it's delivered digitally and it's delivered upstream as opposed to needing one-to-one individual downstream now are we there yet with machine learning and the resilience technology that we're using we're not there yet but i, I think we can get there and I think we have to shift our focus to to do that or the wait lists are going to, going to keep growing as they are right now. So how does one go from producing a documentary to creating an app? <laughs> With a lot of uh, scar tissue, a lot of failure, um, a lot of meetings where you're told you don't know what you're doing and you don't belong in this field. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then also some some people who believe in you. Uh, you know, it, it helps to uh, it helps to have people who surround you who are expertise. Their expertise is in that field. Um, to give you some current examples, you know, at Headversity we have media specialists, we have uh, you know data scientists and engineers, we have you know uh, user experience and user interface experts, and and uh, and also you know people working on finance and marketing and capital raising. So all those things that I had no exposure to, I try and just learn as much as I can every day and, and uh, continue to provide a vision for where we can go. How did you, how did you come up with the, the vision? I mean, you know what you want, you know the vehicle, but now you've got to fill in. Like It's like you have the skeleton, but now you got to add the muscle tissue and put the skin on it. What was that process like, Ryan? The the best metaphor I've ever heard for having a startup company. So we're not a startup right now. We're I'd say we're in the kind of the scale up mode. Yep. Uh, where we're we're you know we're not new to the game. We're more of an established kind of player in this uh, new space. Uh, but the the best metaphor I ever heard for being in a startup was you're in a vehicle with you know four other people. Let's say those are your founders. You're driving 100 miles an hour and there's no windows or your your windows are all blacked out so you're literally you know able to see through this tiny hole in the dash uh that you can kind of guide yourself so you can only see four or five feet in front of you but you have to move so quickly 
to keep up with the technology. As soon as you find something that works, there's another group that <laughs> can do it even better. So it's uh, it can be stressful at times. It's a lot of fun. Um, but you literally never know uh, where the next three to six months are going to take you. So for those folks who, um, you know, want to work <laughs> for adversity, we always tell them, look, uh, this is not a company where you're going to come, where you're going to know exactly what things are going to look like a year from now. That's not what it's going to be like uh, because our technology is moving so quickly and our way of uh, operating and having an impact is improving so much every day uh, that this is, not uh, this place pivots and shifts quickly uh so that you know it's not for everyone that's for sure the process for creating content for this was that you know for the lack of a better term was that the the the, the icing on top was that the enjoyable part of this process you know content like uh, i think coming from and i want to say a non-creative field like medicine where you tend to know the answer moving towards something where creativity is uh, not not just uh, a nice to have, but it actually is fundamental to the process. I found that creativity takes a lot of work. So you need to have that, that process established. Uh, so at, at times it's been fun when you come up with the aha mm -hmm. and you can really move and take your, you know, your app towards something that can really have an impact. Um, the creative process though, what I did not know is that it is work. Like and it, it oh, is, yeah. it's tough, it's tough to do day in, day out, uh, which is, you know, I, I do have a lot of respect for, for those in creative spaces and those in media and broadcasting who are continually thinking of something that has never been asked before or put out in media before it's, uh, it's legitimately tough work where I previously thought, Oh, it'd just be so nice to be, you know, an artist or a creator. Cause you just go with the flow. Not the case. You got It's it, it. can be a grind. Ryan, not unlike the question I would have asked you about, you know, the the documentary. So you get it up, you get the app running, but now you've got to find, you know, people to use it. You got to find groups that, and and you do have a couple of partners that I want to ask about ATB and and the USHL. So you know, one inside business, one in the 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 sport and the hockey realm. H how did you go about getting? You know, somebody, because you know it and I know it, there's, go to the app store every day and there's brand new apps. Um, you do have to b get some buy-in from some partners. How did you go about finding partners? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's a, it's something that I had no understanding of before I got into this. Like I went into this totally blind. Um, there's, there's a lot of great books about how startups find their first customers, um, and how you can figure out what need you're actually taking care of. Uh, you know, we come in as startup founders and think, oh, there's this problem out there and I'm going to go fix it. And the person who's actually purchasing your goods and services might see the issue entirely in a different, entirely different way in fashion. Um, so with the USHL example, they're one of our first uh, clients and uh, we now have over 40 clients that we work with in large organizations across North America. Um, they their issue, to be frank, was that they were having a lot of players coming to their managers and coaches and saying, "I need a mental health day," or "I'm stressed about this," or 
do you think my brother is drinking too much? Or do you think I might have depression? Yep. And those coaches and trainers and managers were, of course, willing to have those conversations, but they had no training to do that. Mm-hmm. They had no, you know, they had no outlet of where to send that young person, even though they wanted to help them so, so badly. So with the USHL, they needed to put something in place that was digital because that's where young athletes are. That was scalable that they could get to every athlete over the course of an hour. They could advertise this. Everyone downloads it. They're good to go. And that actually did something that could show results and measures. So uh, that resonated with the leaders at the USHL. Um, and we've had a great relationship with them and uh, are continuing on our work uh, with, with those athletes. Unlike a, a documentary, which you, you finish, you put out, and in your case, it's still being consumed, but you don't have to add to it. Where do you go from here with Adversity? Where, how do you continue to build on this, this establishment and, 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 and update, I guess? Yeah, we, we, we have some, like you have what's called your product roadmap, where you want to continue to take your product um, such that it is always meeting needs of, of the people who purchase it. The people who purchase our product are most typically, you know, executive directors of sports leagues or vice presidents of human resources in, in uh, large organizations. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we do a ton of work in like the kind of blue collar space, essential worker mm-hmm. space, and a ton of work with athlete groups. Um, so we need to always build our product to make sure we are, uh, you know, figuring out what their needs are and staying one step ahead of them. So we listen very closely to uh, what they want and what, we can build potentially through the, the lens of building resilience on a mobile platform um, and then continue to build our team so we can reach more people, you know, and that's in a lot of ways, that's a sales and marketing thing is to figure out what are some of the, what's, where's the white space in the market? Where, what are, where are the organizations that we could have the most impact in and how do we reach those folks? Two, two more for you, Ryan. One has to do with, the the space that you're in and 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 the peers or the competitors or however you want to view them and um how do you how do you view them i mean your connection to to sport calgary came through wayne from respect in sports so you know there's some you know obviously crossover there but what's the community like what's the the sphere like that you're working in it's it's an interesting time for that community because um uh you know in some ways like Wayne and the respect groups, not a great example because we have quite a close relationship with them. Uh, Wayne has, you know, provided myself, uh, an enormously generous amount of mentorship. Yeah. And I believe strongly in what they're doing. He and Sheldon and their team. And, uh, you know, I, I think he believes strongly in what we're doing. So that's not a great example because we're not as, we're not competitive per se. Um, there's there is competition in this area because um, you're kind of competing for some of the same budgets. Uh, like uh, you could you could, for example, if you're an executive director of a sports league like a USHL, you could find an arm's length government organization who would bring in a workshop speaker for you. You know, you could do that, and then that would be you're not going to get fired doing that, like the old adage, you never get fired for bringing on IBM. Um, 
you're never going to get fired for bringing in like a government organization who's been, you know, rolling out workshops for 30 years now on depression and suicide. Um, so there is some, a little bit of competition there that, that uh, it would be nice if it was at times more collaborative. Um, and I think it will move to a space where it is more collaborative as some of the smaller players get amalgamated into bigger players. Uh, but currently, uh, you need to, you know, find your niche and you need to, to work with your buyers in that niche to make sure your, your messaging and your marketing gets to the place where it needs to be. And the last one has completely nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but is the final question that we ask all of our guests on this very podcast. And I give it to you with uh, no context. You can interpret it any way you want, but um, part of it is what we're trying to do is bring Calgarians together and the Calgary sport community together, and we want to promote our city. So, Ryan, give me your hidden Calgary gem. Give me that hidden Calgary gem that's out there. There's somebody's listening to this podcast they don't know about. You can, you can uh, uh, kind of pump it up right now. Like a location? Well, okay, uh, it's so this, why, this is the thing. Yeah. Like, I, It could be a coffee shop. It could be a park. It's been all of those things for people. It's been crazy. It's been awesome, actually. It's a great question because it, it, it really has shown me a lot about our city. Okay, so my favorite thing about... Okay, I'm going to give you two gems. Is that okay? That's 100% okay. Okay, so when I... I true, like, Nirvana happiness for me is when I have played a rec hockey game and I'm driving back to my home. I live in, in the Northwest mm-hmm. and I'm driving from the South to the North and I'm crossing the, the bridge in Crow child that kind of gets to Memorial. Yep. And I see, you know, out of my right window downtown and it's perfectly silhouetted. And, uh, and you see like, sometimes you get that like purple or even orange hue that silhouettes downtown that is, those are some of my favorite times to live in this city. So if you it. can catch it at just the right time and just the right season, usually fall. Driving over the Crow Child Bridge looking downtown is one gem that I love. Love it. Uh, the second one, most Calgarians are not going to like this. Uh, but when the Rough Riders come to town, there is a certain section that is the most uh, rowdy section. And I think it's like... It's on the it's the cheap seats, like in the corners, one of the four corners. Right. Uh, that's one of my favorite places to be in the city because you have all these Calgarians who moved here because we love the city, <laughs> but we still need to pledge allegiance to the Rough Rider flag. Uh, so for an evening, uh, twice a year, we get to just put watermelon helmets on and be yahoos, and uh, and that's a fun time. So those are my two kind of favorite parts of the city. Well, and, uh, I I love the yeah. first one. I'll begrudgingly accept the second one. But it is part of Thank the fabric you. of this city. Um, Ryan, so excited about this. Uh, I'm excited about uh, the fact that you're going to be working with Sport Calgary on, on something very important coming up here in a couple of weeks. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for spending some time. This has been a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out this is actually our second conversation. And uh, the first one happened on overtime in 2003-4, <laughs> and it was game six when, you know, obviously the Flames lost, yeah. uh, that the puck was in game. Anyway, yeah. I had traveled from uh, my hometown, which was five hours away. And uh, and so before we left town, we were damn sure that we need to talk to you on overtime. <laughs> and you were a gracious host on overtime. So, uh, of course, you wouldn't 
in God's name, you couldn't remember that, but uh, this is the second conversation we've had. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, I, uh, the fact that you took time to call, uh, that was a, a moment in, in my life and uh, that I'll never forget and was really cool. So thank you for sharing that, uh, Ryan. That is really neat. Thank you. Uh, Ryan, or Dr. Todd, if you will, a great guest. I, I recommend that you and your organization check out Headversity, um, I, and I, I just so wholeheartedly believe in the messaging. I can't wait to check out and test drive the product myself. So thank you to uh, Dr. Todd for joining us. Um, w- just a little note as we go here. Um, I think we're going to take a pause here. I mean, the, the world took a pause, but I think this podcast is going to take a pause. We started it way back um, in March um, as a way of acting as a diversion during the pandemic. Um, a lot of people were panicking. A lot of people were looking for for a diversion, and, and we thought, what better one than than tell sports stories from Calgarians and, and about Calgary? And I'm really proud of what we've done. I'm really proud of the podcast we put out. Nearly sixty. Um, we we were churning them out with some really really cool guests from all over the spectrum, and and I think they stand alone very well. So at this time, we're going to take a pause. Uh, not to say that the original Six Feet Conversation podcast won't come back at Sport Calgary. Not to say there won't be original podcasts at Sport Calgary, but this one in particular, I think we're just going to pause for now. Uh, I do want to thank uh, David Benson and and Becca Gould for all of their work making this happen. But most importantly, I want to thank you guys. Anybody that took the time to to listen and and to share, uh, it's very much appreciated. So. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back soon with something. That's just the way it works around here. Uh, But thanks for joining us on the original Six Feet Conversation podcast for Sport Calgary.